Our second reading for this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, beginning with the 17th verse. He came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out of him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I imagine that for most of you, most of you that are even a little bit familiar with your Bibles, when I was reading through that passage just now, you thought to yourself, gosh, that's got a, that's got a ring of familiarity to it. I've heard some of those words before. I know I have somewhere, but something seems a little bit different, a little bit odd. And yes, you are right to think that, for these words are Luke's version of what we find in Matthew, much more famously in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now again, you have these two different accounts, this, this, these two different speeches of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount in the one hand, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and now here, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Now why exactly Luke has Jesus talk from a level place, I'm not really sure, but he does. <laughs> So you have the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And these these two texts are so similar uh, that scholars have long posited that they came from a similar source or from one source. So Matthew and Luke, when they were writing their Gospels, most scholars today would say uh, they both used Mark uh, for the outline of their Gospels and for many of the sayings and many of the miracles that Jesus did. uh, Most of those come from Mark. And Matthew and Luke did slightly different things with them. But then it also seems clear that Matthew and Luke shared another source, which scholars call Q. And indeed, this passage we have this morning, this Sermon on the Plain, uh, comes from that Q source. And Matthew and Luke both used it in different ways. And yet, when we look at this Luke version, you can see why people like the Matthew version so much better. (laughs) Not only do you have... um, the blessings, which we'll get to in a second, but then you have this whole section of woes, these four section of woes. These woes are those that Matthew leaves out. He does not include them in the Sermon on the Mount. 
After all, who wants to hear, you know, woe to you who are rich, Uh, woe to you who are full now, woe to you who are laughing now. Doesn't exactly bring a warm, fuzzy feeling. So if you look at what Matthew did, Matthew actually changes a number of things. Uh, And again, scholars think that Luke is probably closer to the original based on the changes that Matthew Matthew made. So as opposed to, blessed are you who are poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And not just blessed are you who are hungry, but blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And not, the, you know, blessed are you who mourn, but blessed, or not, not blessed are you who weep, but blessed are you who mourn, so you will be comforted. Matthew takes the stuff in, Matthew takes the Sermon on the Mount, or this is Q material, uh, and spiritualizes it. And then adds on a couple of the things that we all like, like blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are uh, the meek. All these things that we're so familiar with. So what on earth are we supposed to do with this text from Luke? We like the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, heck, if you were to go Google images, as I did, looking for images for the front cover of the bulletin, and you Google Sermon on the Mount, there are so many images, it fills up page after page after page of your Google search. You go Google Sermon on the Plain, and you got nada, nothing. (laughs) Similarly with music, or so MJ was assuring me. Text, you know, musical text of Sermon on the Mount, tons. Sermon on the Plain, not so much luck. So what do we do with this text? Do we just throw it out and say, hey, I like the Matthew version better? What's going on? Well, here in the Lucan text, in the beginning, we see something interesting. After Jesus heals people on the plane and has power go out of them and they're cured of their diseases and also uh, cured of the evil spirits in them, the text says that Jesus looks at his disciples There is a specific shift from the crowd that's there to his disciples, and he looks at them. He wants them to get what he's saying. He's looking right at them. And unlike in Matthew, where the Beatitudes are in the third person, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here in Luke, it's in the second person. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is a message that's directed directly at the disciples that are there. Think about these disciples, what they gave up. Again, last week we looked at the passage where James and John and Andrew and Simon leave their professions to go follow Jesus. They left everything behind. They left their jobs. They left their houses. They left the comfort of what they had to go follow Jesus. I'm imagining that at this time in Luke 6... When Jesus looks at them and says, blessed are you who are poor, they're like, yeah, that's me. Because they all gave up everything. And blessed are you who are hungry, they gave up the security of being able to eat every day. And I imagine they're sitting there and pretty hungry because they're not getting as many meals as they used to. They're getting a one or two meal a day rather than zero. I mean, if, I know that the fasting diet's really in vogue today, but it's not so much fun for, for you when it's required. I'm imagining the disciples that are there are starting to have second thoughts in their heads. And maybe this wasn't the best idea to follow Jesus. As much as we like him, we kind of like the security of not following him too. And so this text is Jesus looking at his disciples and reassuring them, saying, Blessed are you who are poor. I know you're poor now. 
Yours is the kingdom of God. Don't worry, you've made the right choice. Blessed are you who are hungry now. I know you're hungry now. Don't worry, you made the right choice. You will be filled. Blessed are you who are weeping now. Don't worry, even though you left that former life behind, and I know at night you're sitting there crying, don't worry, you're blessed. This, you, you made the right choice. And even though they haven't been persecuted yet, he's saying, listen, the, when the persecutions come, don't worry, rejoice. This is a good thing. You're doing the right thing by being here. And he adds those selections of woes as well to add an extra little push for those who might want to stop following him. I know you're hungry now, but woe to those who are not. You're in the right place. Woe to those who are full right now. You're not full right now, but woe to those who are. You're in the right place. You're doing the right thing. And stay here and keep doing this. This is a message of reassurance to his disciples. They're doing the right thing. They're blessed in what they are doing. And if they were to do something else, woe to those people who are leaving him. There's one sort of key thing that cuts through this about Jesus' notion of discipleship. Uh, that we see in the Sermon on the Plain, and that is the core element of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? At its core, it requires sacrifice. Something that uh, certain people in our society aren't very happy about. Again, our society is all about uh, not having to sacrifice everything and still getting everything that you want. But that's certainly not the case with Jesus and his disciples. And again, this, this month we're celebrating Black History Month. And one thing uh, that is easy to do is look back and see people who have sacrificed for their faith in an effort to try and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we mentioned the example of Fannie Lou Hamer, this woman from uh, southern Mississippi who gave up her life as a sharecropper to go be a civil rights, to go struggle in the civil rights movement. And she was in prison, she was beaten, she had to endure all sorts of hardships in order to follow that through, but she was following God. She felt that to be a call from God. You can look at other heroes of the civil rights movement, whether it be Martin Luther King Jr., uh, whether it be someone like John Lewis, whether it be others who came down from the north to help out those who were struggling for the civil rights movement. There were real sacrifices involved in that, in following their call. It wasn't easy. But the sacrifices that are made being a disciple aren't just, of course, the, the great ones for being a for being a big prophet and big social change. Sacrifices of a disciple come in, sim- in small forms, simple forms every day. The very fact that you came here to church this morning is a sacrifice. You could be sleeping in right now, and you're not. You could be binge-watching Netflix right now, and you're not. You could be wasting time on Facebook and then putting all those rants down, but you're not. You're here to worship God. You're sacrificing what you could be doing to be here. And I know another part of the calling to be a Christian, you sacrifice your time. Volunteer time. If you want to actually make a difference in the world, if you want to be a disciple, part of that means sacrificing. You have to say, hey, I'd like to do this other thing, but instead, God's calling me to do this, and so I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out and pick fruit to then give to other people uh, yesterday. I'm going to try and put together an event to raise money so we can go on our mission trip to Back Bay, uh, a mission over the summer. I'm going to, even though I don't want to do this, I'm going to go to a board meeting and actually work really hard to try and make sure the church is a thriving place. I know exactly, Linda, your favorite thing in the world. (laughs) Being a Christian involves sacrifice. Also financial sacrifices. As a Christian, you make financial sacrifices in order to support the causes that you need, to put your your heart where your treasure, you, 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 you put your treasure where your heart is. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
That means you can't have things that you might do. Maybe you're sacrificing on a vacation or sacrificing something else so that you can live into your Christian vocation. You're choosing to live below your means so that you can have the capacity to give to others. That is a real sacrifice, a sacrifice that a lot of people in our society do not make. And yet, as Christians, we're called on to make that sacrifice. One element that we see of discipleship in this passage, it's about sacrifice, just as the disciples sacrificed. But there's another important thing in this passage that I want to lift up. And that is uh, the fact that Jesus here is making the gospel and the gospel life explicitly about material things. So, oftentimes in, 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 in Christian circles, particularly privileged Christian circles, it's, it's convenient to spiritualize the gospel. Um, so, for instance, I'll give you an example. In the 1960s in South America, yeah, you saw the rise of liberation theology. Now, one of the core things in liberation, the, the Roman Catholic Church for hundreds of years in South America had been intimately involved with the power structures of the day in South America. And when people were struggling and poor, it was told to them, well, go to church every day and pray because don't worry, your reward will be in heaven later on. And liberation theologians said, no, 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 no. If you're actually a follower of Jesus, it's about the here and now, and it's also about materially helping people. It's not just enough to say, go say your prayers. You actually have to go change the way society is structured so that justice comes about, so that people have something to eat. Here you have, in this Sermon on the Plain, Jesus saying, blessed are you who are hungry. This is a real thing. It's hunger pains. It's, this is not a good thing. It's, directly, it's not poor in spirit. It's those who are actually poor. Blessed are those who are poor. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, you see the same sort of emphasis on material, material living. It's not just about the spiritual. It's about the material. When people don't have enough food to eat, that is a spiritual issue. When people don't have a roof over their heads, that's a spiritual issue. When they don't have access to health care, that, that is a spiritual issue. The material and the spiritual are not separate realms, but one and the same. And that's one of the elements that Jesus is lifting up right here in this text, something that we can't forget. Last year, one of the books we read in Christian education was Landing Gilkey's Shantung Compound. I don't know how many of you were in that class. Great book if you haven't read it. Go back and read it again. He, so it's, it's a book about this guy, who an American who found himself in a Japanese concentration camp in the Second World War in China. And one of the things that Gilkey discovered in that concentration camp is that when food was scarce, when space was scarce, people who normally would be really kind and happy all of a sudden weren't. People were incredibly selfish, selfish to a degree that it threatened to destroy society. Gilkey came away from that saying that in order for us to actually have society function in a peaceful, healthy, just way, we have to find some way to put the values of others above ourselves. And also that it is fundamentally material. It is about material goods. He tells a story when he gets back to Chicago, he's giving a speech to various places around about his experience in the concentration camp. And at the time, there was a debate about the UN's uh, Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. This was a precursor to the Marshall Plan. And so as this is being advertised, people in America are being like, oh, well, you know, why should we go help those people in other countries? We need to take care of our own. So again, after World War II, people were starving in Europe, in Asia, and other places in the world as a result of the war. And so Americans were arguing, should we give aid or should we not to help these starving people? And so here's Gilkey getting up, and he'd give his talk about the concentration camp and make a direct link between, between the, this UN program to help people who are starving and what was going on in the camp and his experience in the camp. 
And he tells this one story. He's in this particularly nice house where people have all this food and these beautiful cars. And this woman gets up and she's like, well, I know you want to go help those people. But really what, what we should be doing is exporting our values, our spiritual love, because that's how they're going to find what they need. And Gilkey's like, that's nonsense. The Christian life is not just about spiritual stuff. It's also about material stuff. Particularly people don't have very much material stuff. That becomes spiritual. And that's exactly one of the points that Jesus is making here in the Sermon on the Plain. And there's something else that's going on here, too. Something that happens throughout the Gospel of Luke. And that is an intense concern with power dynamics in society. Again, if you look at the Magnificat, you have the Magnificat is I know, that great song of Mary in the beginning of Luke. It's very much about bringing down the powerful and raising up those who are lowly. When Jesus announces the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, he talks about his ministry being all about lifting up those who are oppressed and downtrodden. It is about attacking the power structures in society, and here we have a similar thing here. We have blessed those who are poor and woe to those who are rich. There is, this, there is an inherent power dynamic here that being a Christian means actually naming that and doing something about it. This past week, uh, one of my friends uh, on Facebook, I mean, I know him, but he's also a friend on Facebook, and he went to a conference on philanthropy that talked about how we could uh, both do good and do well at the same time. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, doing good while doing well. So you can help others without having to sacrifice, basically. Um, and given the fact that this text was in my head, <laughs> I immediately responded and said, have you read Reinhold Niebuhr's Moral Man in an Immoral Society? And he said he had not. I said, well, I suggest you read it. What Niebuhr talks about is that those in positions of power and privilege are rarely going to voluntarily give up that power and privilege. They might give small amounts of crumbs that doesn't actually affect the power structures of society, but they're not going to give it more than that. But Niebuhr also critiques those who, okay, he's writing this in the 1930s, he also critiques communists who would use revolution in order to try and get power for themselves. Because, as Niebuhr points out, that gets you in the same cycle, though. That only if you can step beyond your own self-interest, see power structures in a realistic way, can you work together for justice. That's the Christian calling. And it's what Jesus is calling on his disciples to do here. To live a life of sacrifice, seeing that central to the calling, to see that material goods are actually spiritual as well, particularly when people don't have them, and to be realistic about the power structures of the world and your own, section, and your own place in them. To worship something beyond yourself so that as society we can move to a different place. When we do that, according to Jesus... When we step into that uncomfortable place of discipleship, then indeed we are blessed.